0: As an opening for this evening's lesson, I want to go ahead and read a portion of Scripture. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'll read and then we'll begin. I do have, from what I can tell, a pretty brief lesson. So we have time to read more Scripture. Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read verses 18-18 through 29 if I had to summarize this section the point that's being made is that as we come into the New Testament church we come to something different than Mount Sinai we come through Christ but we do not come to a different God So that's sort of the the, the gist of what's being said here. I'll begin at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice, whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly or church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. Regardless of the time or place or epoch of history, you have not changed. So, Lord, would you stir our hearts again to see your glory and your majesty and your goodness. And would you give us worship, Lord, put praise upon our lips. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So over the last three Lord's Day evenings, we've laid three stones in, our, in the foundation of our theology. I don't think any of these stones are uh, something that we've never heard before or, or startling revelations, but they are foundational to what we believe as Christians. The first was that God is creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. We start there. The second was that God is sustainer. God, we learn upholds the universe by the word of His power, Hebrews 1.3. They're specifically referencing the Son. And then last week we dealt with God's purpose, <clears throat> His purpose in creating and sustaining these things. The question last week was, what was and is, so past tense and present, was and is, what was and is the divine purpose behind the creation and continued existence of man? And the answer that we found, summarized in Romans eleven thirty six, is God's glory. For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. God creates, or has created. God sustains. Why? For His own glory. Now with all of this, our... Confession of faith agrees in chapter 4 where it says, In the beginning it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. So it's for His glory. It pleased God to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. God created. God sustains for His own glory. So now the question for this evening is, how should we respond to that? What should that thought, or these truths, what should that do in us? Or what should it produce in us and from us? I hope that as we read passages like Genesis 1-1, or Hebrews 1-3, or Romans eleven thirty six, passages that we hear all the time, the, those are some of the, the high points of Scripture doctrine, I hope that as we read those, it doesn't just fly through your ears and you, you move on as if it weren't even read. Or when, we, when I say, God is the creator, surely you don't hear that and just sort of affirm. Yeah, he's creator. It should do something in us. It should, it should produce something. It should manifest something. The fact that very often it doesn't, if we're honest, it's not God's fault. It's not even the fault of the truth. It's the, it's the fault of our own coldness. That we, through familiarity, often grow in, in, to a point where we see these things as if not contemptible, just boring. God is creator. Oh, give me something else. We all know that. We, there, are, there are entire ministries built around proving the, the Genesis account of creation however we feel about those ministries, we think, oh, that's silly. They, they devote all their time to these most basic things. Let's move on to something better, something greater, something more grand. shouldn't be that way. These, these realities ought to do something. They ought to stir something in us. Very often they don't. But the question is, how should we respond? So that brings us here to chapter 34, our response to God as the Creator. The first heading that He gives is reverence, and humility. Reverence and humility, and now I'll read. Our first response to God as Creator should be one of reverence and humility. We reverence God to the degree that we acknowledge His highest place before us as Creator and Lord of all and regard Him with the utmost respect and awe. We humble ourselves to the degree that we acknowledge our place before Him as creatures, His possession created for His glory and good pleasure. When men correctly understand creation's relationship to the Creator, they lay prostrate before God with reverence, trembling, and a real sense of utter dependence upon the One who made them. When was the last time You lay prostrate before God in reverence, trembling, and a real sense, not an affirmation, a real sense of utter dependence upon the one who made you. The answer to that, and I'm not saying that everybody has to respond the same way, but very often our response is not even remotely close to that. Prostrate on my face before God? That's the way everybody in the Bible responds is, God, has God changed? But very often we don't. It, that's our coldness. That reality is what, what causes me to want to read passages like Genesis 1:1 1, 1 again, and Hebrews 3 1:3 3 again, and Romans 11:36 again. Read it until it settles in and breaks you. We just gloss over them. And then we say, well, of course, we should respond. Reverence, humility, yeah. What does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like. That's never been my response. Well, have I ever revered God? Have I ever been humbled before God at all? It ought to cause us to examine ourselves. And that's what we'll see from from the Scriptures. Let me read you a definition of reverence. Reverence is defined, this is uh, Webster's 1828, So probably newer definitions now, but reverence was, was defined as fear mingled with respect and esteem. Veneration. So to venerate is to to, to to esteem or to elevate someone in your in your estimation. Reverence contains veneration, admiration, and genuine affection so you can you can venerate and admire but not actually have any affection for a person or a thing that wouldn't be reverence reverence has within it a little bit of affection or or admiration with it the fear this is again from the dictionary this used to be in the dictionary the fear acceptable to god is filial fear an awful reverence of the divine nature, proceeding from a just esteem of His perfections, which produces in us an inclination to His service and an unwillingness to offend Him. So he there relates reverence with the fear of God. Now let me define humility, and I'll I'll use Jonathan Edwards. Humility, he defines, as a habit of mind and heart corresponding to our comparative unworthiness and vileness before God or a sense of our own comparative meanness in His sight with a disposition to a behavior answerable thereto. Notice both of these things, humility or reverence and humility, both of them start with God, produce something in us that then leads to some action or some feeling, something, some alteration in us. Humility could be described as thinking of ourselves rightly in comparison to God and then conducting ourselves in a way that matches with that assessment. And both of these, again, obviously begin with our knowledge of God. Reverence is our disposition toward God, having known Him. Humility is our disposition toward ourselves, having known God. If you don't know God, if you you don't have a knowledge of God, you cannot revere God and there will not be humility. Knowing God leads to revering God and humility with regard to ourselves. So reverence and humility. Now let's turn to Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. The psalmist says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him, for He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now in this psalm we see what God does. God made the heavens. He made all their hosts, the stars, the planets, galaxies. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That This is a description of creation and the sustaining of that creation, which we've seen. So what is the response? Well, it's actually commanded here. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. What is our response? Fear Him. Stand in awe of Him. Now we typically think that it, it should read something like this. God destroyed the world in the days of Noah. God swallowed up the rebellious in the earth in, in the days of Moses. God took the children of Israel into Babylon and had them almost completely wiped out. God Destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Let all of the earth fear Him. Those those mighty, uh, startling uh, executions of His justice and destruction. Now that, that should surely strike fear and awe into our minds, our hearts. It doesn't. Very often it doesn't. But that's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist says He created all things. He spoke and they came to be. Fear Him. Fear Him. The note says the word fear is translated from the Hebrew word yare, which with respect to God, it it denotes having the greatest reverence for who He is, what He has done, and what He can do. The word all is translated from the Hebrew word ger, which also denotes fear or dread. God is not to be feared because of some inconsistency or immorality in His person or works. Rather, it is the unchanging uprightness of God, His righteousness, holiness, Majesty and power that calls for our reverence. Again, who God is, here's the point: who God is produces something in us. His his very existence and our recognition of his existence, it should alter us in our souls. And I do want to emphasize that point that he made. God is not to be feared because of some inconsistency or immorality in his person or works. You know, we, we, would, we might would fear a capricious king who just randomly lashes out in anger and destroys people. We would fear him because we don't know what to expect. We don't know what's going to happen. Is he going to be angry today? Is he going to be happy today? We don't know. We, we oftentimes get nervous around our fellow man just because we don't know how they might respond. We, we are often unpredictable. This is not so with God. This is not why we fear God. As we read, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Compared to the manifestation on Mount Sinai, God has not changed. He was a consuming fire then, He's a consuming fire now. What should we expect God to be? A consuming fire. He's not changed. God has not changed and so we reverence Him. His perfect, immutable character causes us to fear or revere Him. Now let's look at Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verses 1 through 4. Here we have a text with regard to humility. And he says there in the note, "...all and reverence are inseparable from humility." If we have truly comprehended something of the infinite perfections and power of God, we will humble ourselves before Him. We we are commanded to humble ourselves. And I don't know whether it's actually legitimately right or wrong, but I've heard men pray, Oh God, humble us. That makes me a little nervous. Typically, it's not a good idea to tell God to do your job when He tells you to humble yourself, and then we pray, God humble us. What we ought to pray is something like, Lord, help us to see more of who you are so that we humble ourselves. We're commanded to humble ourselves. When we revere God, it leads to humility. Look at the passage, Psalm 8 verses 1 to 4. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So we have the objects of David's observation. He's looking at the heavens. He's noticing the moon and the stars, the things that God has made. Again, the created things. God as creator, that's what David understood, and his reaction. And when you read the psalm, it's almost like a startling shift. I looked and I looked and I looked, comma, what is man? It's like he's shocked. As I look at all this, what am I? Who are we? It leads immediately to self-contemplation, introspection, self-comparison. David knows that God's name is majestic, that His glory is above the heavens. He's created the heavens and all their hosts. And then he lays that right beside God is mindful of man. God cares for man. David is saying, compared to all that, what are we? Or compared to all that, who am I? We see that David feels, what, from that definition we read, his comparative unworthiness. Compared to all that God has done, who am I? What am I? David's been humbled. Humility doesn't come from comparing ourselves with other men, but by looking at and beholding God. Reverence comes as we behold our God and are taught in the inner man regarding His true nature. As God reveals to us who He is, we will revere Him. Knowing God results in or produces humility and reverence. The second thing that he gives us here is worship and adoration. Worship and adoration. Reading again, he says, How can the creature not worship its creator and sustainer? The debt that is owed him cannot be measured. Would anything exist if he had not spoken? Would not all things immediately turn to chaos and destruction if he did not sustain them? Could the constellations and planets find their way without Him? Would not the seas escape their, escape their boundaries and engulf the land if His hand did not hold them back? Could man draw even one more breath were it not granted to him by God? How then can we not worship? It would not be wrong to say that the primary purpose of creation and especially of man is to worship the God who created us and by whose power and faithfulness we are sustained. The worship of God is our highest privilege and greatest responsibility. When we do worship Him, we are at last fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. Worship and adoration. Let's look at Revelation chapter 4 verse 11. Revelation 4, 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So why is God worthy to be praised? For you created all things. Because He's the Creator. The note there says the adjective worthy comes from the Greek word axios, which denotes something or someone of weight or great worth. In in the old world, they would measure value by weight. God is deserving of all praise, thanksgiving, and service. Our English term, worship, comes from two words, worth-ship. So to worship is to ascribe worth to God in some way. To worship God is to think, live, and speak so as to ascribe that value or that worth, to show what you believe God is worth based on what you know of Him. That's worship. So if He has created all things and He's sustaining all things, then He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of being ascribed all glory and all honor and all power because He created. The next passage is Psalm 148. Let's turn there. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 13. I'll just read the whole thing. There are only 14 verses. Psalm 148, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens, together old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. Now, he, he, the task here is to identify creatures and realms of creation that are called to worship God. Now, obviously, all of this is creature or creation, but if we divide it up into, or try to divide it up into creatures and realms, the creatures named here would be His angels, the sun, the moon, the stars, sea creatures fire, hail, snow, mist, wind, mountains, hills, fruit trees, cedars, beasts, livestock, creeping things, flying birds, kings, all peoples, princes, rulers, young men, maidens, young women, old men, children, realms, the heavens, the heights, the highest heavens, waters above the heavens, the earth, all deeps. He says, the purpose of this exercise is to demonstrate that there's simply not enough time or space to list all the different creatures that owe praise to God. Just pick one of those. Creeping things. Go. We don't have enough time to name all the creeping things. That's the point. Even beasts and creeping things owe praise to Him. How much more does man, who has been given grace, position, and privilege above all, We'll go back to Psalm 8, if you pay attention to the way, that psalm, the way that that psalm is used in the New Testament, Psalm 8 really divides man up into the two covenantal categories. It was applied to Adam, and then it was applied to the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all human beings find their place either in Adam, fallen in a broken covenant of works, or in Christ, redeemed through a kept covenant of works. The New Testament applies that statement about the the. A sub- subjection of all creation to man, to Christ Himself. We who are in Christ have received grace, position, not just that we are created man, but we are in the man Christ Jesus. Grace, position, privilege above all. So we ought to worship. According to verses 5 and 6, why is creation called to offer praise to God? Verses 5 and 6, let them praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Because He created. We praise God because He has created. According to verse 6, God has established the natural order of His creation. And this order is fixed under His sovereign decree. Nothing will happen except that which is part of His government or rule. No catastrophe will come upon the world except that which has been decreed by God. The Noahic covenant will be in effect until Christ comes to recreate the earth and to bring heaven down to earth. But it's fixed. And again, we see that our response to God is not because He's unpredictable, that He's capricious, that He's inconstant or inconsistent, that we we never really know what He's going to do so we ought to just tremble before Him. It's because of what He has done in the past, because it's fixed, it's settled, it's established forever. That's why we praise Him. According to verse 13, why is creation called to offer praise to God? Look at verse 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. God's creation is a thing of indescribable glory, yet it does not begin to compare with the infinite glory of God's person. He is to be praised, not only or even primarily for what He has done, but also for who He is. And we see there in the text, His name is exalted, His majesty. These are things tied up in the very character and nature of God Himself. We praise God because He's God. But we can look at the creation and take a hint from the creation about who this God is, and therefore we ought to praise Him. The last portion says we'll conclude our study of God as creator and sustainer with two commands that reach to every realm and every inhabitant of creation. So let's turn to Psalm 103, verse 22. Psalm 103, 22. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What is commanded? Bless the Lord. Two times we see it. Bless the Lord and bless the Lord, O my soul. The word bless comes from the Hebrew word barak, which is often used in the scriptures to denote a joyous or exuberant exclamation of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in light of this command, how should we live? Well, I would say our lives should be full of joyous and exuberant exclamation and praise and thanksgiving to God. Our lives should be that, not just verbally, but everything that we do ought to be praise, joyful praise and thanksgiving to God. We shouldn't be embarrassed or even slow to acknowledge our praise and thanksgiving to God. Even as we were outside today, some people took the opportunity to say, God has given us a beautiful day. God has given us, the, you know, he, God uh, held back the rain for long enough for us to, to spend some time together. Acknowledge God's working in what we're doing. Don't be embarrassed about that. Praise Him. And then the last text is Psalm 150 verse 6. Psalm 150, verse 6, the very last verse of the Psalms. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What is the command? If you have breath, praise the Lord. I think the implication would be use that breath to praise the Lord. The note there says that this word praise is translated from the Hebrew word halal, which means praise. And you'll notice a lot of these final psalms begin with this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. They're called the halal or the halel psalms. The title Lord is translated from the Hebrew word uh, that that we would would transliterate as Yahweh, the name of God, or Yah. It is from these two words that we derive the term hallelujah, praise Yahweh. When you say hallelujah, you're, you're, you're speaking the covenant name of God. In Hebrew, repetition as throughout this psalm is extremely important. It is intended to communicate emphasis or intensity. We ought to be a people who praise the Lord with, with our breath. Praise the Lord. So let me ask, in closing, does your life praise the Lord? Is, are you living a life that someone would say, that's a life of praise, They are rendering praise to God in their living. Do your words and speech praise the Lord? Is there ever true reverence and fear of God in your heart? Ever? Do thoughts of God serve to humble you? You think of God, think of who He is, think of yourself. Does it humble you? Or do you, do you feel like you have to just very quickly put those thoughts out of your head and get back to, to real matters here before you? Let's make sure that we're being shaped in our souls and in our thinking and in our living by who God is in everything. He is the great reality undergirding everything else, and we ought to praise Him. With that being said, let's pray.